Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from We Screenplay. If you've just completed a draft of a script and are wondering what next, well, you need to check out We Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources, like virtual events where your questions are answered by Hollywood's leading professionals, with incredible 72-hour turnaround, format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, and a price that no one else can come close to, We Screenplay coverage is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their careers, from emerging writers still finding their voice all the way to Oscar winners. So if your script is all ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned, and staffed as a direct result of the real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops offered by We Screenplay. Don't stay stuck. We Screenplay want to help. Check out We Screenplay by visiting wescreenplay.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Screencraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted thing. Fortunately, Screencraft is here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. Screencraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures starring your favorite writers to hands-on career coaching with their excellent writer development team. These guys offer the best screenwriting competitions designed to help your talent shine, featuring judges that really know their genre, from top literary reps to Oscar-winning screenwriters. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of Screencraft, Winners have been staffed on shows at Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, the list goes on. They've also sold scripts and been hired to write films for the likes of Universal, Lionsgate, Blumhouse and Hulu. So if you're an aspiring writer, what are you waiting for? Don't wait to check out Screencraft today. Visit screencraft.org or click the link in today's show notes. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies and TV shows. My name's Al Horner and joining me this week is the tremendously talented Sammy Birch, screenwriter behind one of the year's most alluring dramas. May-December, directed by Todd Haynes, tells the serpentine tale of TV actress Elizabeth played by Natalie Portman, who descends upon the home of a family founded on scandal. Two decades have passed since Gracie, portrayed by Julianne Moore, and Joe, played by Charles Melton, hit the headlines after beginning a relationship when Gracie was in her mid-30s and Joe was just 13 years old. Researching the now-married couple ahead of a film based on the controversy, Elizabeth joins Gracie and Joe in an attempt to understand what makes them tick. Along the way, she discovers that debris still remains from the tabloid storm that engulfed their lives. It's a story that Sammy wrote in 2019 after landing on the idea with her partner, Alex Mechanic. What would make a 36-year-old woman start an affair with a seventh grader, you might be wondering? Well, you're not alone. Gracie's former husband echoes those exact words in the film. But May-December isn't interested in answering that, at least not declaratively. This is a film that refuses absolutes, asking more questions than it answers. Does the 20 years of stability and apparent happiness that Joe and Gracie have shared justify the wrongs of how their relationship began? Does the family life they built paper over how predatory and problematic Gracie's behavior was, initiating a sexual relationship with a child? And what does it say about us, that as a culture, we're so drawn to the transgressions of people like Gracie? 
Are we as parasitic as the prying actress who dismantles their lives almost on a whim? These are all questions left for us to ponder after its credits roll. They're also questions that Sammy was delighted to give her take on in my revealing conversation with the debut screenwriter. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this film, nor how much I enjoyed breaking down Sammy's script with her in spoilerific detail. A huge thanks to Sammy for being such a fantastic guest, and a massive thank you to our Patreon community who helped make this episode possible. If you like what we do on Script Apart and want to see the show continue to grow, patreon.com forward slash script apart is the address for you. For the price of a single monthly cup of coffee, you'll receive all sorts of perks, including your chance to ask questions to upcoming guests. There's no big team behind the scenes at Script Apart, it's just me and my producer Cam. So any support you can throw away is hugely appreciated. That address one more time in case you're interested, it's patreon.com forward slash script apart. Okay, that's all the admin out of the way. Let's jump in, shall we? This is the fantastic Sammy Birch discussing the first draft secrets of May-December. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Hey, Sammy, such a delight to have you with us on Script Apart. May-December is such an achievement. Huge congratulations. We're speaking today, a day before the film hits cinemas. I'm curious, what's the emotion for you today on the eve of having your first produced screenplay realised so beautifully by Todd Haynes released into the world? It's it's a lot. It's really exciting. It's emotional. Um, I'm, I'm so, you know, because of this, there's been the second wave of people seeing it and and reviews and it's been um it's really exciting it's it's a lot to process definitely (laughs) yeah i can imagine (laughs) it is your first produced screenplay as i say but by no means is this your first experience working on an incredible movie you've worked in casting on all sorts of great films including the hunger games movies was casting always a stepping stone towards being a screenwriter for you? Has has this been the dream since day one or a dream that you discovered while kind of already embedded in the filmmaking community? Oh, um, definitely this has been the dream. I mean, I was writing in, in high school and I went to a screenwriting, to, you know, um, program for college. Um, and then casting was really... You know, if you if you see on the Hunger Games, um, my credit is I was location casting assistant. So I was um, not even the assistant in L.A., but in um, North Carolina and Georgia, uh, where all the supporting roles and day players were cast. Um, and that was really just a product of uh, my environment. I grew up here. My mom is a casting director. And I grew up in her office and at a certain point she moved to the South to do location casting. And when I was temping after college, um, I was actually temping in a, the real estate department of a hospital. (laughs) So (laughs) not exactly the coolest place. Um, she needed an assistant really fast and I flew down and did a project and that started a, a trend of like going down South doing a movie coming back, writing, going back. And then I started doing casting on my own in a similar fashion where I would like do a low budget independent to buy myself a month of time kind of 
situation. So it was always felt like a day job, even though that was a crazy plan, not sustainable. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, uh, also just so, you know, just the bottom tier of, of that profession that I really respect and, and admire. Well, not to get too inside baseball about how, you know, my interview process works, Sammy, but, you know, often with these, with these chats on Script Apart, I like to go back and sort of, uh, you know, look at a, a filmmaker's biography and see perhaps like the seeds, the things in a person's past that may have contributed towards them telling that particular tale. This being your first produced screenplay, um, you haven't done many interviews, so there isn't that that information available. Can you tell me what it was that uh, you think enticed you towards May, December? Like it's it's obviously like an amazingly salacious and taboo story that's ripe with dramatic potential. You know, it's about a couple 20 years apart in age who 20 years ago had the most scandalous affair. We're picking up with them, you know, all this time after the dust has settled to see what scars remain. That on its own is is very, you know, dramatically enticing. But I'm curious if you've had any time to think about whether there was anything specific from your own life or in your own storytelling sensibilities that put you on a path, I suppose, towards writing May, December? That's a really good question. I mean, I think that, I think that that, I do have sort of a dark sensibility, you know, the things that I've written previous to this that are just in, in drawers. Um, and also the short films that I've made with my now husband who shares story by credit on, on um, this project. Um, we, you know, I, I do, I feel like at a certain point I started to see patterns of um, kind of going for something that's very upsetting, but pivoting in some way um, where in this case, it's both the time, you know, you get the breadth of that. And then also um, our entry point being this actress, you know, that kind of inherently being comedic of, you know, this sort of foolhardy search for, for truth <laughs> to make, <laughs> just to exploit it. Um, and I think that that's, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly where that comes from, but that's, I think what I like as an audience member too, of, of things that um, always have that mix tonally. And um, I think that's just a, a convenient way um it, right from the premise to give us a little bit of distance so we're not you know this is there are no flashbacks in this film you know that you, we're by no means staring directly at the origins of this story and 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 how upsetting it is that's not to say it's not very upsetting um it is and we and there and it, it's very intentionally we continue to be reminded of it throughout but it's all it's very fragmented um but but i also think because i did grow up in los angeles i grew up i mean very literally in an auditioning on, on, like a casting office waiting room with actors um and a lot of people around you know like a lot of i mean la is very demented you know um it's a very it's delusional but it but um but it's a lot of things <laughs> but i do think that 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 certainly informed um some of the ways in which i look at the industry and um 
and all of that. So it's definitely part of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a real life precedent for the relationship at the heart of May-December that I discovered in prep for this interview as like a a non-American. That story hadn't reached me over here in the UK until now. Oh, um, oh, wow. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So for any listeners unaware, in the mid-90s, America was scandalized by the story of Mary Kay Letourneau. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, She was a teacher in her 30s who had a sexual relationship and then later married a 12-year-old student of hers. Letourneau was convicted of rape and went to prison, after which the pair had two daughters together. Sammy, tell me about this. Like, How did that real-life story factor into the writing of this tale? Yeah, I mean, the big picture things are are evident. I mean, I always think of it like if you take your glasses off, you know who it's about, just, you know, in the way of, you know, like succession, we know who that's about, (laughs) kind of feeling, but it's not, um, but I didn't want to do a literal, um, true crime, unauthorized biopic that all these things are, you know, which has been done with them and everything else. And there are also a, a lot of, sadly, a lot of similar, um, celebrities, I guess you would call it notorious tabloid celebrities of these women teachers. Um, I think that it was so prevalent here, especially in the nineties when I was a child. Um, and it was so much in the time of Tanya Harding, Monica Lewinsky, you know, all, all of these iconic, uh, you know, I think like the Mount Rushmore, um, kind of, <laughs> uh, tropes of, of the time that it felt there wasn't a time where I didn't know the story. I always knew it. You know, I always knew, um, OJ, you know, there's not any time where that wasn't, um, part of the atmosphere in my life. So I think right now, because we are in this almost Renaissance of system systematically going down and seeing, you know, these retelling, oh, let's relook at Monica. Let's relook at Tanya. Let's, re, you know, it, it felt like there was only a matter of time. Um, and, and for me, it, it really came in a, from a more natural place of just having this thought of, oh, you know, those kids are probably adults now and kind of thinking of the house empty, you know, almost like you would be a retired couple, but he's only, you know, in his thirties. And that was really the seed that um, emotionally connected me to this idea. That's really interesting. Um, The film is such a brilliant example, Sammy, of coming at a story and coming at characters with curiosity, I suppose, rather than judgment. Like May, December isn't here to kind of bludgeon you as the viewer with any kind of moral verdict on these characters, even the ones kind of guilty of predatory behavior. It's neither kind of a condemnation of the Letourneau figure in the story, nor a film that absolves them. So yeah, why was that balance? Why was that neutrality important to you, Sammy? I just really like that. You know, I'm not, I don't like being, being fed things as an audience member. And I think that just feels natural to me. That's, that's a beautiful way to describe it, that it's it's with curiosity and not judgment. I think because some of those things are, I think it's inherent. I don't, I think for people who haven't seen the film, I think they worry 
when people talk about gray area or or you're constantly examining, you know, it's not a binary. It's not, was that wrong? You know, it's like, we, we know it's wrong, like it's wrong, but, but what now, what, what, how, why, what do we, how can we, how can we process the fact that there are these children here? Um, it's, you know, how can he possibly process everything that happened, including the, I mean, when you imagine the tabloid media blitz, which we get a lot of clues about, um, that's so damaging on its own as well, you know? Um, and, and once there's, once they're at a certain point in life, you know, it's just too, it's too hard to untangle. Um, and, and, and it's so uncomfortable and all of that is, um, just interesting to me. And in the same way that it's interesting to me that we feel the need to, um, exploit these stories one right after the other famous or not. I mean, you know, that that's just very much a, a, a kind of successful part of the industry right now. And, and I feel a certain neutrality about that too. I think there's can be like a scathing critique in moments, but I'm not, you know, there's to me, the thesis if anything is that things are very complicated across the board. And that's, um, that's just, I think, interesting to try and navigate. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose if there is any judgment implicit in the film, it's towards kind of the tabloid culture that we get glimpses of in May, December, like in the form of like news clippings. And of course, in in the scars that, that Gracie, Juliana Moore's character, she very much seems to be still carrying those around from the scandal 20 years ago. Was there something that you wanted the movie to express or explore about how, you know, as, as a culture, the messiness of people's private lives are often seized upon without much of a duty of care for the real life people kind of caught up in it. You mentioned OJ there, you mentioned some other examples, Lewinsky. It sounds like that kind of um, tabloid exploitation, to go back to that word you used a moment ago, that it seems like that was very much on your mind. Oh, definitely. I mean, I really feel like I always start from a place of character, but these things just felt inherent in a story like this. Um, and there just are these many levels of exploitation that, that take place. There's obviously Gracie's exploitation of, of Joe, um, and then the media of, of all of them. And then, and then us as the audience consuming these kinds of stories and certainly Elizabeth coming in, um, you know, with, with basically no moral compass as we learn <laughs> throughout, um, you know, for her own gain to try and, you know, be considered this serious actress. And, um, and that's, yeah, that kind of the way those things all mirror each other, um, are, is, is definitely interesting to me. And obviously with, you know, the way Todd, you know, direct shot this film, that these, the, the, incredible framing all the mirrors that are used it's um i think that is a beautiful um thematic way to you know visual way to describe the themes yeah the the mirroring is really interesting there's there's one moment in particular in the film when elizabeth and gracie are discussing their contrasting lives while kind of intimately helping each other kind of apply their makeup 
Elizabeth mentions that her mother wrote a book on epistemic relativism. Gracie then replies that her mother wrote a great recipe for a blueberry cobbler. I googled what uh, epistemic relativism is because I did not know what that was. Um, it, It seems to boil down to the question, are our beliefs justified only relative to a specific culture or society? Which feels kind of like one of the questions that this movie hinges on, like whether it's just a social taboo that Gracie has broken or an inherent moral uh, wrong that she's kind of enacted. Can, can you talk me through that? Sure. I mean, you know, what's the saying, like writers know <laughs> a, a, not a very lot, you know, where it's like, you know, a little about a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sort of a, a lot about a little. Um, I certainly cannot speak at, at length about um, epistemic relativism. I, it, it, it was in writing that scene um, I always knew that Elizabeth's family came from sort of academic life and that that was maybe one of the ingredients of what made her feel insecure just as a person and with her profession and, and you know, creating that chip on her shoulder. And um, it was really as simple as, you know, OK, philosophy, like, let's get into it with what, <laughs> what feels relevant here. Um, and, and I, I mean, really it's as simple as that, but that's, but exactly that's, you know, it had, it, it completely, um, it completely applies here. Um, and you know, it's those little kind of, cause I would assume n- not many people are well-versed in, I don't know, <laughs> philosophy and really specific, maybe they are, but I'm not, but that just, I would that any any opportunity I can to put in a detail that has thematic relevance, you know, I like to. Can I just press you a tiny bit more on that question, though, Sammy? Whether the uh, whether the transgression that Gracie committed twenty years ago was wrong unto itself or just wrong in the eyes of society, like it is, as I say, kind of the question that propels the entire movie. We wait till the very end for some kind of declarative answer from the film that is never going to arrive as to whether there's a real love between her and Joe and whether that now justifies the kind of predatory behavior two decades past or uh, whether Gracie really did take advantage in an indefensible, uncaveatable way. Yeah. I mean, I think that the moment that gets um, in an audience physical reaction, you know, like a gasp every time is in that fight when, when she says, you know, you seduced me. And it's such a stunning moment because we of course know that's not true. (laughs) And, um, and I think that there's this, I think we know, I mean, this is so much, this movie is so much about denial and, how little is being said, honestly, even within the skies of like, we're getting to the truth. And I think it functions a little bit in a horror movie or or like a horror movie in that way, where instead of, you know, don't go in the, the basement, it's say it, say, say what it is, please. You know, I mean, there's just this, um, active tension. I think that your body feels because you know, what's, um, what isn't being said. Um, and I think that 
Joe is just able to start process. You know, I think it's the the culmination of the graduation and this actress doppelganger coming in at the same age as he is and at the same age that Gracie was, which is all 36, you know, that shifts something loose a little bit that he's, you know, that they've never had this conversation. Um, and I think that, I think we feel it in our bodies a bit. <laughs> um, and I think that it doesn't need to be said, I guess, you know, um, I think it's more thinking of what now is it possible? You know, I think, I think we get a lot of it a lot of information in the monologue with the letter. We get a, a lot of clarity on certain things, but also, I mean, when I see that scene, especially as it's shot to camera, especially when you're in a theater and it's looking down on you, you know, I always feel like, you know, you it's, it's, it's all three, it's climax, you know, climaxing really all three characters, but in a way it's, I feel we are Joe in that moment and like the amount of pressure that's being put upon and the def definitions of love, the very definitions of this is a rare love. And from, to someone that's so young, I think, how can you ever untangle it? You know, how can you ever say, oh, well, there is love when the very definition is being given to you um, at a time that you're so impressionable. Um, but then, of course, there are the kids. And that's what he says in that scene. You know, it's like he has done an incredible job of raising these children um, and they are wonderful. And there is sort of that they kind of do have that light, that hope, I think. Um, that's how, they, you know, they function. And yeah, it just becomes very <laughs> tricky to to think about from his perspective and i think that's where we sort of are partially navigating you know yeah well i'm excited to talk about your first draft a bit sammy um the first thing to kind of mention is this first draft was called may december it seems like that's always been the title mm -hmm. i'm curious when you landed on that and and what those words mean to you because you, you know there's a, there's a kind of gap in time inherent in that name may december which kind of applies to to gracie and joe's ages it also kind of implies summer and winter, like these opposites that sit incongruously together, which I think like, uh, you know, speaks to some of the uh, the relationships in the movie, Gracie and Elizabeth, who are from different worlds. At one point you specify in the script that Elizabeth has never had a hot dog before. They're very different people. Talk, talk to me about that name, where it came from. Yeah, well, it's, I think I've learned since that it's, it is a, a, a phrase more popularized here um, in the US, but normally it's it's always in in the phrase a may december relationship there's a dash um and what i really liked about it besides just kind of the sound <laughs> and the way it looked was there's like a subversive quality to calling the movie this because while you might refer to them as a may december relationship if you just met them at the pda or no pda what is it? The PTA? PTA. Yeah, exactly. That's a funny slip. Um, that you would, um, 
you know, you think, oh, wow, he's so much younger. And, you know, these are adults consent, you know, it applies to them. Then it really doesn't apply in such a uh, predatory situation, you know, with a minor, like, I, I don't think, you don't think you would refer to it as that. So, so even from the title, there's something that is being presented to you that isn't exactly right. You know, that is kind of a twisted distortion of what we're seeing. Um, and then also, I think there's something nice about, you know, it's it, the, the thing takes place between Memorial Day, which is in May and, and graduation and, you know, this kind of springtime, um, you know, so, so inherent to the the idea. But um, but yes, I love I love that, too, that there is this immediate contrast, this visual contrast. And um, a lot of the re- relationships do mirror that. Hey there, this is Al. Just jumping in with a quick word about one of our great sponsors this week, Stowe Story Labs. Stowe Story Labs are a fantastic non-profit organization with a decade-long track record of lifting up emerging storytellers. They offer labs, writing retreats, long-form writing programs, ongoing mentoring, and advanced development programs to rising filmmakers with talent and great stories they're burning to tell. If this sounds like you, well, good news. Submissions are now open for their 2024 Narrative Labs, Producer Labs, Writing Retreats, and Fellowship and Scholarship applications. The retreats in particular sound absolutely dreamy to me. The idea of being able to knuckle down on my next script in beautiful Galway or on the coast of California is pretty tantalizing. These events are set to run from June to November 2024, with $80,000 being made available in the form of partial and full scholarships, plus at least 11 fully funded fellowships for anyone to whom the cost of attending would be prohibitive. I'd recommend you hurry though, applications close on December 25th. Head to stowstorylabs.org to find out more or click the link in today's show notes. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. And in the first draft, much like in the, the finished film, You begin with a monarch butterfly landing on the leaf of a milkweed plant. Its thick black body curves underneath and lays the smallest little white egg you've ever seen, and then it flies away. The delicate egg sticks to the bottom of the leaf impossibly. A bit further back, we see there are hundreds more. This is such an interesting kind of um, like visual metaphor that runs through the film, Sammy. Can you talk to me about like the, the meaning of that monarch butterfly and uh, yeah, how you started to thread it through this story? Basically, there was a, a few months of time where um, Alex and I had had this idea in a really in a conversation, all the main elements had kind of come into place. And then there was this time of, Oh, we, sh- we got to outline that. We got to put cards on the wall. And in that time, you know, I was taking notes of random little things. And, and around Christmas of 2018, um, I saw, I was like isolating in the room during Christmas, big family Christmas. And I read this article about people that do this very thing that, that they're concerned about the monarch butterfly population. And they, they take in the eggs into their home and like protect them and then let them go. And they've had, you know, they actually had an impact on the numbers. And I just thought that was a a really amazing thing to do. And it really connected. It's kind of twofold for me with Joe. It's like, I think there's this element 
that he is this caretaker. Like that's essential to his being, not only with these butterflies, but the the children, how he's been forced to be one to Gracie and um, or at least trained. And and even with Elizabeth, you know, it's not her being seductive. It's not her being a good listener. It's ultimately when she is sick that that he's a you know, she's able to sort of get to him. And so in that way, that felt very nice. And then there is this this metaphor of of transformation, cocoon growth, you know, and it is an obvious metaphor. You know, there's something about it that's and I love and and Todd and I talked about that right at the beginning. And that, and I love the way the music almost lets you know. It's like we know you you know them, you get the metaphor, you know, like there's something so um uh, bold about that. But I think it's for me, I've always th- I think I think of it as like it's Joe's. It's not me being clever, giving a metaphor to you. It's Joe's subconscious giving a metaphor to himself, kind of like that there's he has repressed so much. He has. Desperately protecting himself, trying to to press it all down and you can see it in his body and, you know, but these things pop up. You know, I've seen, I mean, I think that's something I'm familiar with just as a writer that I'm sure happens in other ways of, you know, when you look at material, you go, mm, hmm, that's a theme that's in a lot, you know, where you kind of start to, <laughs> um, you're, you're giving yourself clues. And I, and I think that's sort of part of the, of how I see it, but it is also beautiful. And I do love that they had to be on 24 hour butterfly watch. Um, for these births, like a pregnant lady <laughs> and got the call in the middle of the night and Chris Lavelle, the DP had to run to the butterfly <laughs> set. <laughs> and like, then this is the beauty of like this random butterfly was born on film immortalized. They have no idea. Like, I love that too. That's so great. I'm glad you mentioned the music as well, which, oh my God, it, it really does play a huge part in this film, the score. Like, yes, it, it has this kind of brute force melodrama to it, the way that kind of music in a soap opera kind of functions. Like it, it kind of serves to remind the viewer every step of the way of it, what could be perceived as like a soap opera-esque quality to the scandal of Joe and Gracie's relationship. But of course, what we're seeing on screen, what's unfolding in front of us is so much more grounded and so much more human. Um I love all that. I should stick to the storytelling, I suppose. Okay, this yeah. is a screenwriting podcast. Um, the script then describes Camden, Maine on Memorial Day. You describe it as a beautiful small town on the coast, an area of New England that still somehow feels untouched and pure. American flags in store windows, young girls in baton twirling outfits readying themselves for the parade. The houses are beautiful and old, but modest. Pastel colours, big yards, trees everywhere. A bright, breezy day. The finished film, however, of course, takes place not in Maine, but in Savannah, Georgia. I'd be curious to know about like how, uh, yeah, the location ended up changing and um, whether there was a practical reason behind that or whether, you know, there was something about the South that perhaps added another layer of meaning to the story. Like I'm saying this is very much an outsider, so correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, Georgia and those kind of Southern states are spoken of as having kind of more traditional family values, which makes Gracie and Joe's relationship, perhaps more of a transgression. Yes, it was. Um, it was a practical reason that was incredibly lucky, because um, Maine, 
um, and and all of New England, they have seasons. <laughs> and so when when the schedule came up, you know, it was sort of sudden because Todd's previous project had had gone away and it was like they steered the ship really quickly to this movie. Um, the window of time where Natalie and Julianne and Todd all aligned was in the fall. And so it became a, a leaf issue really about um, how this could, because graduation is so essential. And um, and when there was a list of things where they were thinking, okay, what could we shoot for spring? Savannah was on that list. And both myself and the production designer were very much like Savannah would be great. And I lived in Savannah for a year. I went to my first year of college. I went to the art school down there. And so in that way, it was really lucky because when I did the pass for to, to turn Maine into Savannah, some things were were wonderfully the same because they focused on Tybee Island, which is very much a coastal kind of isolated community, um, which felt important. But then Savannah itself is really specific. If you ever have a chance to visit, um, it basically, it's the city um, when, when Sherman Sherman's march through the South where that burned down Atlanta, um, you know, like and gone gone with the wind. They they didn't burn Savannah down because it was so beautiful. That's the story that's told, at oh. least here, Lynn Savannah. <laughs> that's what they say, and it is beautiful. It's it's this, it's designed around all these little squares that have something in them. They're all different. The trees are just, you know, there's the Spanish moss. It's so romantic, but then at the same time, yes, it's very segregated or it, it has dark roots of that. Um, you just turn a corner and you see some, you know, th there's clearly such a traumatic history, but also, and present, I would imagine. And also there's this, it's the most haunted city in America. Like when I was there, I was in the haunted dorm room just by coincidence that got, you know, that had a website from like 1995, you know, silly, but it's, but so that's very much a part of their, their um, identity as this, this very specific place that people can't go to stroll around and be like, Oh, it's beautiful. It's charming. You know, anyway, so, so that felt so incredibly correct, more correct than Maine ever did. You know, in that way, I liked it. Maine is just the top. It's like, so it's just its own little arm up at the top <laughs> that is, um, you know, has just kind of has this, the reputation for being like where people go who are um, just want to do their own thing. You know, they're just up in Maine doing their own thing. And um but yes, so the, so the changes were in some ways really subtle, um, but in some ways um, they really spoke to a specificity of of place and of of this this facade that's happening and and these dark things underneath. It's interesting. Like in the original script, we then of course meet Gracie, who you describe as floating around her kitchen, spreading whipped cream on cakes and laying strawberries atop them in a pleasing way. Between the pure pastoral Americana that you describe in that sort of uh, setting of the location um, that I described a moment ago, and then this kind of very traditional American homemaker pastime, baking cakes, 
it feels like straight out of the blocks, you're kind of establishing some kind of idealized version of what American family life should look like. And it's one that kind of Gracie can aspire to, but she may never be able to achieve that because of the foundation of scandal upon which her family was built. On one hand, she's so admirably defiant. She like outwardly refuses to have regrets. She refuses to apologize. But in all her kind of pastimes, like baking and floral arrangements, these very wholesome things, it's almost like she's attempting to kind of compensate for something and be like the model American housewife that maybe she can never be. It, like, talk me through that, Sammy. That's really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, there it's very wholesome activities and they are very feminine activities. You know, I think that there's this this sort of hyper femininity that she um, revels in and chooses to pass down to her daughters um, or attempts to. Um, and I think, I think with Gracie, there's just, there's a, an arrested, I mean, there's a lot of arrested development in this, but there's, there's a childlike quality um, that a little girl, you know, like there's this, that's the way she sees herself in this situation, or at least is, is desperately trying to see herself, you know, that she's the little tiny <laughs> person that needed, um, a man, you know, needed, you know, that she was seduced, that she was, um, completely innocent. And, and I think a lot of those, there is this tension between, what she's saying and what we know to be true or what we either later find out to be true and we see behind closed doors. But um, yes, I think that I suspect she grew up in a home like this, you know, that her mother, that, that there, there, there's a heritage there to this kind of traditional um, sweet, <laughs> uh, you know, Certainly, yes, idealized Betty Crocker um, kind of kind of life, these hobbies, these like these lovely uh, female pastimes, you know, and um, and I think that's core to her. Like that's it's it, it's willful how much she wants um, that to be her life and that to be true. One insane quirk of this first draft is um, it's a throwaway line. It's literally on the second page. Gracie explains how the actress better not turn up wearing big Jackie O sunglasses, which of course is a reference to Jacqueline Kennedy, who of course Natalie Portman famously played a few years ago. Uh, obviously, I know you've got a background in casting, but you weren't already envisioning Natalie for this part when you wrote the film, were you? Because that's either amazing foresight or a mad coincidence. No, it's a really crazy coincidence. It's it's and I was, and then when, and then when she got involved, it, I mean, when she became, uh, when she decided to do the movie and also produce the movie, it was like, oh, we should probably change that because it's too. <laughs> <laughs> but it, no, it's a it's a really crazy coincidence. Um, and 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 one like there's there's been a lot of kismet throughout this whole process like that. But yes, it's it's very funny. Um, we then meet Joe, who's 36. Um, he comes in from the backyard and gently kisses Gracie on the cheek. He too is beautiful, as you put it, like a despondent aristocrat in a Dutch painting. I love that line. 
can you tell me who Joe was to you, Sammy? And and perhaps what what was behind the decision to make him a person of Asian heritage? I mean, at one point, kind of Gracie mentions that his was the only Korean family in the neighborhood. And he jumps in saying half, kind of interrupting her, correcting her. It, obviously, it's kind of really important to, you know, reflect in our stories that relationships between peoples of all walks of life exist in the real world. But I also wonder if Joe's racial background adds another dimension to the feelings of otherness that he's going to experience across the film with you know, his relationship, with his community. I'm also aware that the um, Letourneau's partner was, was also a person of colour. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, what felt essential was that he had, um, that his parents had had immigrated, or or in this case, once um, Charles was castle, that was just his father. But um, I wanted to, I wanted there to be this this element of the way in which trauma can spread through families, and a sense like it was important that where his character's father or parents had come from had experienced something horrific in their childhoods and so that that's kind of where um timing wise i felt like the korean war like that made sense to me there could have been other he could have come from other places but um i imagine that's what i imagined that that his parents had experienced something incredibly difficult themselves probably firsthand witnessing horrible things and that that would potentially besides a lot of other cultural elements um that could possibly um account for when something like that was going on that there's you can't help but compare and you know like there's some some invisible thing happening there um and that felt important to me. And yes, I mean, Camden, Maine, that's about as white of a community as you can get. And I think it's its mirrored again in Tybee Island um, that these are just, it doesn't explain, it's, one, not, it's not one thing or another, but, you know, trying to build um, ingredients that caused this to happen, that made sense to me that, you know, exactly, he's, there's a certain isolation that he, that made him more susceptible or more vulnerable to this experience um, is how I was seeing it. And after that, we meet Elizabeth, of course. Um, it's such a fascinating tug of war between Gracie and Elizabeth that we start to see unfold in the film as you know, she starts to spend time around her and Joe. And that relationship is, of course, and our relationship with the character as an audience is complicated by the fact that Elizabeth is an actress. Like, we can't be totally sure that she's not putting on these kind of acts of compassion, acts of kindness from a purely altruistic place. Like, it may very well be that uh, it's ambition that's kind of informing that. She is very notably, like, she's a TV actor. It, you get the sense that people don't really take her, her seriously and that maybe she thinks this is her, this role is her ticket out of that. You know, it, it might elevate her to a new place in her career. We we start to get these glimpses of the chaos of her own life. There's, uh, you know, mention of an affair with, with the married director that she's working with on the movie. She herself is engaged, of course. 
How did Elizabeth come to be as complex in the script, Sammy, as the woman that she's there to shadow? Well, I think that in the first draft, there's let like there is, it's a little glib. Like I feel like at a certain point in this process, you know, that, you know, I did a pass for glibness <laughs> is what we called it. Um, and I think deepening Elizabeth's character was um, some of the, uh, you know, once Natalie became a producer, you know, she had so much insight into um, this role, which was fascinating. Um, but I think, and a lot of that was, you know, the way Elizabeth seems very uncomfortable when Joe isn't immediately kind of seemingly attracted to her and, you know, the way that she's navigating. But what's, what's been there from the beginning, I think, is is this two-facedness, this mask that um, I think we, get, we didn't get access to it in the film, but in the script, you can see those notes that she's writing. And they are, I think, you know, they're they're very cutting. <laughs> um, and so we get to see that behind the mask a bit, but she is very judgmental. Um, and I think, I mean, yeah, I, I, I think that was never a question for me right from the beginning of, is there genuine um, care for these people? I think it, there becomes it, you know, I think that she's, she likes the attention from Gracie, they both do. They like being seen by each other or, you know, they like the reflection of each other in the other's eyes. And, um, and with Joe, I mean, some of the most honest things that Elizabeth says in this, the film are, are, I mean, there's only a few of them <laughs> really, <laughs> but you know, when she's some of the expressions, you know, when he says something that's particularly, you know, when he says, I wanted it, you know, there, that expression, you know, it's subtle, but it's, you know, I think we can see some of the guilt and some of how she really feels and some of her discomfort. Um, but yes, she's of course, ultimately self-serving and incredibly insecure and wants to get off her animal hospital network procedural, <laughs> you know, she, she wants to make that, that crossover and, and that's, um, what's the most important thing to her. Which is crazy to me because Animal Hospital, I'd definitely watch that. No questions <laughs> asked. Um, yeah. Speaking of Joe, like we, we keep getting these shots of Joe texting someone. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in like his dissatisfaction and how you started to kind of thread it into the movie. It, of course, like results in first that kind of stoned freak out on the roof with one of the kids. Then, of course, with him sleeping with Elizabeth late on in the film. Can you talk to me about like that particular scene when they get together? Yeah, I mean, there's there's this. There's this innocence that he has. Um, of course, because I think he didn't he there, uh, there was a big chunk of development that was sort of um, not allowed to be. Um, and when he when he connects with Elizabeth, I think it's so unfamiliar to him of what exactly is happening that he kind of, you know, and then Charles plays that so beautifully in the, in the movie, it, you know, kind of gets in the bed, like the house crazy, you know, there's like a, a really young, um, 
feeling to that that's heartbreaking um and and when he gets stoned on the roof and that's something that in the first draft you know the sun was added as a note from um jessica elbaum and, and will farrell who were the first producers on which i now feels wild that that wasn't um that that character wasn't always there but and that scene on the roof um but yeah these 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 moments where we get to see him tip it, dip his toe in the water um, and almost, you know, have this, it's, it's like a coming of age, you know, um, have these, these big moments and, and seeing his eight, you know, 18 year old son feel at least like a peer, but in some ways like the father um, it's um, it's just always been part of the, the fabric of who Joe is that, that he needs, he is un, there's been so much unsaid and so much unprocessed. And so it's kind of finding these, poking these little holes in the balloon of water to try and alleviate some of it. Um, and I think that's what's the, with the scene with, with Elizabeth in the inn when they um, have sex, it's like, in a way, it's, of course, very cruel. It's very selfish of her. You know, I mean, we get the sense and in earlier drafts, it's more before the before the device of the letter being given to her at that moment. It's, um, you know, she starts taking notes um, about what it's like to have sex. With. I mean, it's 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 research and boredom and ego. And, you know, I think all of that for her and, and that's very cruel. But in a way, it's still net positive. I think for Joe, like, I think that's a really good kind of thing to that kind of propels him into the next scene um, where he can begin or, or potentially never again, but, but there is this confrontation with Gracie because of it, I think. It's net positive for Joe, but it doesn't necessarily feel like it's net positive for Elizabeth. Oh, definitely. Yeah. We end the film like seeing the movie that she's shooting and just frankly it doesn't seem like it's going to be very good like the the kind of very clunky symbolism of her playing with a snake and the the very wispy childlike voice that she's putting on to play Gracie it feels like just another kind of tawdry tv movie and Elizabeth doesn't look happy and, and with that comes this sense of was was all that worth it upending these people's lives you know you, you question whether elizabeth is part of the exploitation and whether she's an extension of the the tabloid culture it's it's a really fascinating like note to end the film um can you talk me through how you came to this yeah i mean like in some ways it functions as a punchline and in some ways it's a tragedy i mean it really is um i mean we get clues the director doesn't seem all that in control and, and the, um, <laughs> the, the audition sides and, you know, and, and just her, her in general, you know, we, don't, we get the sense is not exactly, um, Spencer, you know, but, but she might think it is. And, um, and when we finally see it, I mean, it's, I love how it, it, there's, there's such a glee, I think, to everyone involved in the movie to get to kind of go, well, what, you know, what's not good, you know, like to, as far as the production. Um, but the, yes, exactly. There's this sense of, oh, this is what it was for. Oh, this is, this was what it was worth. Not only 
um, sort of the destruction through these people's lives, but also potentially her own spirit, you know, whatever toll that could take. But then it's so sad because, I mean, that's funny and it's sad, but the the look in her eye, you know, begging for this other take. And then right before the, you know, that, that last look, it's so insecure. It's so, there's so much doubt is what I see there of, of that. She'll never, even after all this, she'll never get it. She'll never get to the truth. You can't obviously, you know I mean? It, it's, it's impossible. And at what cost did she try? And, um, you know, just to see this movie and what is it going to, where's it going to go? You know, who's going to see it? Like there is, and of course, yes, that, that it's just as tawdry and um, exploitative as, as these TV movies, but with even they are more honest in some ways about what they're doing. You know, this is under this other guise of art and, um, and all of that is kind of baked in, I think. You mentioned like, uh, you know, the truths that this film doesn't unlock and the things that sort of still elude people by the end of the movie. One of the things that uh, isn't explicitly answered is the kind of truth around this suggestion that Georgie, one of the sons, floats um, around sexual abuse. Like this idea that um, Gracie's older brothers abused her as a child. Gracie later dismisses it. Uh, you know, we, we kind of mentioned earlier this idea of absolution, letting Gracie off the hook for initiating this relationship with Joe uh, when he wasn't old enough to be making certain decisions. I, I think if she hadn't dismissed it in her final scene with Elizabeth, then um, maybe the audience would leave with like a caveat on her behavior, like th that if she was predatory in how she acted towards Joe, well, she was preyed upon first, so that explains it. But in instead, you don't allow it to be wrapped up so neatly. I, lo I love that element of this. And that came that came later um, from a note. In the first draft, there's Georgie, the, the son, is only in the one scene at first with the lawyer. And when that first conversation with Todd giving notes, he said, you know, Georgie's really dangerous. Georgie's kind of the most dangerous character in this film. And that's so why I had that on a note card <laughs> when I was doing my draft for, for Todd and Natalie. And I was like, okay, yeah, he is, you know? So that, that became the scene after the restaurant with that suggestion and with him talking about being a music supervisor, which is very funny. And the, um, and now that feels so essential to me that, and it's left intentionally ambiguous. So I won't, I won't weigh in on what I think to be, true but what we do know is that elizabeth and i think the audience as you say there is this moment of kind of um letting her off the hook letting gracie's behavior off the hook and go oh i see you know the merry-go-round of sexual abuse and and that's a cer certainly a valid um part of the discussion with this stuff you know and i think that's what that's what gives elizabeth you know, this, this kind of high when she's reading the letter as a, this monologue and this kind of sense of this is the highest that she's going to fly towards the sun. This is the most she's going to be Gracie. And, um, and then the way the swift, like, <laughs> you know, way that, that Gracie knocks that out of her at graduation, you know, is obviously so it's funny and it's, it's, 
it shows how mighty she always has been and how in control she always has been of the, these dynamics. Um, and it does show that she is talking to Georgie every day on the phone, which is something that is a huge surprise, I think, to us. You know, we get the sense that he's out there floating around, not calling his mom every day and saying, oh, guess what I said? Um, so all of that is such a rug that's pulled out from under her. And, and I think it's an important question of, it makes the audience complicit in that too, of, oh, I'll just let her off the hook, you know? And, and is that fair? Is that not fair? You know, what if it's true? What if it's not true? You know, I think all of that, um, those are interesting questions to be toying with as far as how you see this person. And, um, if that, if that's, you know, certainly it's not justified, but it, it, if it's more understandable to you and or not and all of that. Yeah, I think I love this movie as much for the mysteries that it retains as, you know, what it gives away, what it reveals. There's something about like the unanswerable elements of May, December that, uh, yeah, just feels so beautifully true to life. Sammy, I could talk to you all day. Uh, not least because I have a lot of questions about animal, animal hospital. Like, are the animals the doctors at this place? Hence the name animal hospital. Or is it just like one big vet surgery? <laughs> so many questions. We're going to have to keep them for another day as we run out of time. Um, let me just say this before you go. Huge congratulations on May, December. And thank you so much for this fascinating conversation. Oh my God, me too. This was so nice. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Scripts Apart. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder that if you want to help the show continue to grow, you can join us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com forward slash scriptapart or clicking the link in today's show notes. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.